Hello and welcome to episode 199 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Today we are in leafy rural Hampshire for a shocking story of revenge, gratuitous violence and murder. Before we begin, as always, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, especially this week's new members of this exclusive club. That is Julia Harper and Marcus H who has increased his support. Thank you both so much. If you aren't on board yet, join us at patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. 2020 has been a tough year for all of us, and many of us are struggling in certain parts of our lives. For me, it's been finding the right balance of spending time at work, podcasting, and with family, and worrying I'm failing across all of them. Whatever is interfering with your happiness, BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. To be clear, it's not self-help. It's professional counselling in a safe and private online environment. No more sitting around in unwelcoming waiting rooms. And you don't want to wait around once you've made a decision to go ahead, so you can start tomorrow and schedule weekly phone or video sessions and contact your counsellor anytime. What's more, it's more affordable than traditional offline counselling and it's available worldwide. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com UK. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash UK. Time to guess the month and the year for the events we're going to cover today. Are you ready? In music this month, top of the UK charts was the Communards with Don't Leave Me This Way. In the US, it was Venus from Bananarama. Top of the Australian album charts this year was Whitney Houston with Whitney Houston, keeping Dad's favourite dire straits with Brothers in Arms from the top spot. In the news this month, Pan Am 73 was hijacked at Karachi Airport in Pakistan and 20 passengers were killed. The Oprah Winfrey Show was first broadcast nationally. Bobby, Patrick Duffy, returned to soap opera Dallas, and his death was attributed to his wife Pam's bad dream, thereby erasing all of the last season. But we all like a happy ending, right? In the UK, GCSE examination courses replaced the O-levels and CSEs. More coursework and less emphasis on exams was the explanation. Not sure where it all went wrong. Margaret Thatcher officially opened the first phase of the Nissan car factory in Sunderland. And finally, Charlie and Duffy appeared on our screens for the first time as medical drama casualty hit our Saturday night TV screens. And it's still there. As reassuring with the chaos in our lives as the Friday night appearance of Gardener's World. So did you guess the month and the year? It was September 1986. Let's get straight on to today's story. Fordingbridge is a small town with a population of around 6,000 people on the edge of the New Forest in Hampshire, close to the Dorset and Wiltshire borders, around 95 miles southwest of London. The New Forest is a delightful part of England, with lots of deer, ponies and other animals wandering free, as they should do, of course, without the humans getting involved. And Fordingbridge is a quiet, pretty town, known for the Seven Arch Bridge built in the 13th century, and it's the final resting place of James Alexander Seton, who in 1845 
was the last British person killed in a duel in Britain. An official duel, that is. It was just a normal September morning when the cleaner and the gardener, Edward Stubbings, arrived for work as usual at Burgate House in Fordingbridge. It was a lovely house, set in 14 acres of grounds, owned by a retired publisher, 82-year-old Joseph Cleaver and his wife Hilda. Hilda wasn't in great health after a stroke in 1974, which left her paralysed and needing a wheelchair. To help her on a daily basis, the couple had a living nurse, 70-year-old Margaret Murphy. In reality, of course, during the eight years that Margaret had been with the family, she was so much more than a nurse. She was a trusted friend and someone the couple found great company. Margaret's son, who lived nearby, encouraged his mum to retire, but Margaret enjoyed her work and spending time with the couple. Joseph had co-founded his publishing company back in 1923, ahead of his marriage to Hilda in 1928. They had three sons and initially used the home in Fordingbridge as a holiday home until Joseph's retirement. But it was such a lovely, peaceful spot that they loved their time there and were very happy to make it their main home. Even with Hilda's ill health, Joseph would regularly tell people how lucky the couple were to live in such a fine place and he was grateful for all that they had. On the 1st of September 1986, Joseph, Hilda and Margaret were looking forward to one of the couple's sons, Thomas, and his wife Wendy, joining them for dinner. But the next day, as gardener Edward Stubbings approached the house, he could see smoke coming from the windows upstairs. Fearing the couple were trapped inside, he rushed in to see that the ground floor had been ransacked. The pet poodle ran towards them as usual, but it had a terrible wound on its face. The poor dog later died of its injuries, believed to be caused by a strike to the head with a blunt weapon. Heading warily up the stairs, the first body encountered was the couple's 46-year-old daughter-in-law, Wendy. She was semi-naked and lifeless on the bed. Carrying on, Edward tried to enter the master bedroom, but it was so hot from the fire that the gardener couldn't get inside, so he went to the house phone to call the police. But as he did so, he realised the phone line wasn't working. It had been cut. So he left the house and along with the cleaner, raced off to alert the authorities. The police and fire service were greeted with a terrible sight when they arrived. It was clear just from the smell that the curtains, carpets and furniture had been soaked with petrol and there were fire lighters all over the floor. This fire had been no accident. It looked like a burglary had taken place as the house was ransacked and pictures hung at strange angles where it seemed the intruders had been hunting for a wall safe. Joseph Cleaver's previously well-stocked gun cabinet was empty. And the responders were struck by the pristine state of the dinner table, which was set so perfectly in contrast to the carnage all around. One police officer at the house responsible for taking a video of the crime scene later told the independent newspaper, This was a family having a meal together. I shall never forget the sight of that empty dining room. There were half-eaten crusty rolls on the side plates and a few peas scattered on the table alongside the silver cutlery. There was also silence. For these five people, the world had suddenly been brought to a standstill, as if captured on the freeze frame of a film. I hope I never have to record anything like it ever again. 
Upstairs was an awful scene. James, Hilda and their 47-year-old son Tom had been tied, gagged and burned in a fire started by the intruders. They had suffered a terrible, slow and frightening death. The family's nurse, Margaret Murphy, was also discovered dead in the master bedroom. And an autopsy later established that Wendy Cleaver, their son Thomas's wife, had been raped before being strangled in a separate room from the others. As well as telling Margaret's son about his mother's death, police also had the awful task of telling Tom and Wendy's children, at that time aged 21 and 19, that their parents and grandchildren had been killed. But just who could have possibly wanted to cause such murder and carnage at the house? Inquiries locally suggested to detectives that Joseph and Hilda had no known enemies who'd have wanted to hurt them. They were known as friendly, gentle people who kept themselves to themselves. So had the motive been robbery? There were some electrical items like a TV and video player missing, so it seemed that this was the case. And as I said, it looked like the intruders had been looking for a house safe, with so many pictures having been moved. Maybe something else in the house would provide further clues. Once the bodies had been removed from the house, detectives began the painstaking task of sifting through the mess that remained, looking for anything that might lead to the murderers. And they quickly came across a letter written to Joseph from a married couple. 35-year-old George and Fiona Stevenson, who lived nearby in Bournemouth. They'd seen an advert placed by Joseph in the Bournemouth Evening Echo for a living housekeeper and cook, and this was their application. Some basic investigations showed that though they did take up their positions, including living in the grounds, it's fair to say they hadn't been quite the employees that Joseph and Hilda had hoped they would be. George Stevenson was often drunk, but worse than that, he was clearly attacking his wife, especially when he'd been drinking. At one time, his wife, terrified, even ran into the family home, looking for assistance from the abuse she was receiving. Fiona found the courage to leave George Stevenson, and Joseph and Hilda, appalled by this behaviour, asked George to leave. Joseph had handled it in his usual polite and courteous way, and believed they'd parted on good terms considering the circumstances. But all the same, this recent event could have been a potential motive. But it became even more so when detectives uncovered the track record of George Stevenson, who was very familiar with the inside of a prison cell. He'd enjoyed a stable upbringing in the northeast, where he'd been known as a quiet boy from a good family. Until at 16, he first came to the attention of the police for fighting and breaking into premises. From there, he moved to Coventry and briefly married. But from that point on, he had a large number of convictions for fraud, burglary and even assaulting a policeman. But murdering five people in cold blood is a seismic leap from those crimes. Was he the man they were looking for? Surely not. Detectives went to the address in Bournemouth where the letter from George Stevenson had been sent, but there was no sign of the Stevensons who had moved out and another couple lived there. But what detectives did find in the house was the Cleaver's TV and video player. This changed everything, and detectives now knew that they needed to find George Stevenson, and quickly. Not only was he a prime suspect for the murders, but now on the run and maybe desperate, 
there was a real risk that he could commit further crimes. And he was potentially armed with shotguns and a rifle, which had been taken from the house. In these pre-internet days, a nationwide search was launched for him, with his picture appearing on television and in newspapers across the country. Remember those days? And the public was advised not to approach him, as he was armed and dangerous. But detectives didn't anticipate Stevenson's next move, which was phoning the local Hampshire police, telling them he was in the Midlands and had seen his picture in the Coventry Evening Telegraph and would shortly be surrendering to police custody. And two days later, he did just that. He told detectives that he surrendered to clear his name. Detectives weren't sure they believed that for a moment. In the meantime, detectives had made inquiries in the Coventry area and discovered that Stevenson had hired a car on the day of the murders, but he hadn't paid the deposit himself. This was covered by a 25-year-old man called George Daly. Police weren't sure of the connection with Stevenson, but they arrested George along with his 21-year-old brother John at their home in Coventry. It later transpired that George Daly had met Stevenson a few years earlier in a pub, and they'd bonded over a shared interest in car mechanics. Although under questioning, Stevenson and George Daly denied all offences, John Daly blew their lies out of the water when he admitted raping Wendy and robbery. Slowly, detectives managed to piece together what had happened on that terrible September evening. Stevenson was angry at being asked to leave his job, and he was sure that the Cleavers had money, jewellery, and other possessions of value located all around the big house, and he wanted it. George Daly, and later his younger brother John, were both interested in a share of the spoils, and were soon happy to join Stevenson in robbing the house. Stevenson also wanted to steal the guns from Burgate House, so that he could use them in an armed robbery that he had planned for a wages office of a factory nearby Nuneaton. He knew from experience that the Cleavers had plenty of guns and ammunition. The gang hired a car in Coventry, arming themselves with pickaxe handles and wearing stockings to hide their identities. On the way to the robbery, they stopped to fill up the petrol canisters near the house, confident that everything would go to plan. Stevenson thought that the elderly couple and living nurse would be easy targets. He knew that they kept to a strict routine having dinner every evening at 8pm, and that there would be no need to break into the house, as they would just leave a front door key in the porch, so as not to be disturbed at dinner time. And they struck, just when Margaret Murphy had cleared away the main course and served the dessert. One of the masked men ordered the women to take off their jewellery, and instructed the men to put their wallets and any cash or valuables on the table. All five were then taken upstairs, tied and gagged, and placed on beds or on the floor. Poor Hilda Cleaver was tied to her wheelchair by the gang. Thomas's wife, Wendy, was taken to a separate room, where she was raped by all three men as the others watched. When this ordeal was over for Wendy, John Daly, under the instructions of George Stevenson, turned her onto her front and strangled her with a length of black cloth, pulling it tight until her face turned blue. The gang then aimed to destroy all evidence of their crimes and doused the others with petrol, lit a fire lighter and threw it into the room. It was a terrible way for them to die and tragically, 
Thomas managed to escape his ties and headed to the window to escape and raise the alarm. But we can only imagine how he must have felt when before he was able to break the window, he too was overcome by the fire and fell to the floor. But the gang didn't realise that the house wasn't just wood as they'd thought. Following being bombed in the Second World War, the wood needed was not available at the time to make the repairs and so concrete had been used. This meant the fire did not take hold as they'd hoped and spread across the whole house and the evidence of what had happened was there for detectives to see. Straight after the attack, the gang fled back to Coventry, taking with them some decent whiskey and other alcohol from the Cleaver's house. There was in fact a safe in the room they set fire to, containing almost a thousand pounds, but they never found it. And when the post-mortem was carried out on Thomas Cleaver, it was found he had £700 in cash stashed away in his false leg. The mood was good back in Coventry. Thinking they'd got away with it, the gang got stuck into the alcohol, celebrating their success and planning the armed robberies to come with the stolen guns. But this came to a rapid halt when a picture of George Stevenson appeared on the TV as the man wanted for the murders. Even with their collective limited intellects, they knew the game was up. And after his call to Hampshire detectives, Stevenson made his way by train to a campsite near Fordingbridge for his last taste of freedom. And whilst there, he was of course drinking heavily at a nearby pub, when he fell into some conversation with others, telling them he was being framed for a crime he didn't commit, though at first he wouldn't go into details. But unable to stop himself, he did eventually say it was the murders at Burgate House and he even signed a copy of a newspaper covering the story for one of his fellow drinkers. And later in his interviews with police, Stevenson was adamant he was not guilty. He reckoned that on the day of the murders he'd been driving from Bournemouth to Coventry and picked up two Hell's Angels who'd been hitchhiking, and he'd been talking with them about the Cleaver's house. He suspected that those two had killed them later. And when he heard that the Daly brothers had said that he was the ringleader, He said it was all nonsense. He hadn't killed anyone. After all, the Cleaver family were good to him when he lived there. Meanwhile, in his interviews, John Daly went into detail about what had happened. He told detectives after he raped Wendy Cleaver, who was joined by Stevenson, who placed a knife and a piece of cloth on the bed. He didn't say anything, but I knew what they were for, to kill her. So I turned her onto her face, slipped the cloth around her neck, and pulled tight. And his older brother George Daly had told the police that while he was loading the few items they had actually managed to steal from the house into their hired car, Stevenson had told him, they are already dead and I've poured petrol on them. But according to John Daly, it was his brother George who lit a fire lighter and threw it into the master bedroom. On the 6th of October 1987, Stevenson, George and John Daly appeared at Winchester Crown Court. All three denied murder, and Stevenson and George Daly also denied rape and robbery. But John Daly admitted those two charges. As we've heard so many times on this podcast, the trio began to blame each other. Stevenson changed his bizarre story about the Hell's Angels and admitted he was at the house on the evening of the murders, but only as the getaway driver. The court heard from his girlfriend who said that he had told her that he knew the people who carried out the murders, 
and said that in theory he was as guilty as they were. There was some interesting evidence given by Stevenson's brother, who told how Stevenson had smuggled large amounts of drugs into the UK from Turkey and Morocco in a hidden compartment in a camper van. He'd evaded jail by bribing police officers. Bribing police officers? Do people still try to do that nowadays? Members of the victims' families attended court and some friends and family silently wept as the details of what had happened were revealed. So graphic and unpleasant was the evidence that some of the pictures that had been prepared for the jury were withdrawn at the last minute amid fears the jurors would be unwilling court. At the end of the trial, George Stevenson was found guilty of the murder of Joseph and Hilda Cleaver, their son Thomas and their living nurse Margaret Murphy. He was cleared of murdering Wendy Cleaver, with John Daly convicted of that murder. The judge told Stevenson he would serve six life sentences, with a recommendation he serve a minimum 25 years before being considered for parole. John Daly was given seven life sentences, and George Daly was cleared of murder, but sentenced to 22 years for rape, robbery and manslaughter. In 2001, the then Home Secretary Jack Straw increased Stevenson's sentence to 35 years. In 2008, Stevenson appealed to have his sentence reduced by 10 years, but the High Court dismissed this appeal. This means that Stevenson can ask the parole board to free him next year, in 2021. But of course, he will only be released if the board considers it is safe to do so. On the UK True Crime Facebook group, we often discuss living in houses where murders have taken place, with some people happy to live somewhere where such awful events have occurred. I'd struggle. But there were no buyers for Burgate House after the murders there, and in the end, this beautiful, beautiful property, which saw such horror, was demolished. So what you make of what we've heard today? I think it's a particularly scary and frightening story. Joseph and Hilda employed two people and had no choice but to ask them to leave their employment after George Stevenson's drunken behaviour. But how could they ever have thought that he would take such dreadful revenge? It really is beyond any comprehension at all. And on the night itself, with masks on so they couldn't be identified, why not just carry out the robbery? Why carry out such appalling acts on innocent, kind people? It's so scary to me to think that there are people out there who have so little regard for human life and think to inflict such horror on others is okay. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK true crime, come and join the conversation on the Facebook group where there's now almost 40,000 of us. And to listen to bonus episodes and all the behind the scenes stuff from the non-award winning 37th most popular UK true crime podcast and to help me keep producing this show on a weekly basis, please do support me on Patreon. There you will find bonus episodes, a special Facebook group just for Patreon supporters videos behind the scenes and generally you'll have as much fun as it's possible to have not being in Ellen Road. Just head to patreon.com slash UK True Crime. So that's all from me so thanks again for taking the time to join me today. I'm off to take my two lovely Dalmatians for a walk, picking up any mess of course. I have no intention of being shamed for not doing so like someone else on our village Facebook group today. So on that public shaming bombshell, 
It's cheerio from me. Please do take it easy. And despite all the others, I know, do stay classy.